Nurses Who Led the Way More Than Patriotism Edith Cavell The young probationer climbed the stairs of the dark hospital and knocked softly at the door of the directress's room. It was chilly in the misty four o'clock dawn, and she shivered, partly from the cold and partly from excitement. Edith Cavell's voice called, Enter? The probationer went in. Here is the package, madame. She knew it contained slices of bread and some milk. Edith Cavell was ready and dressed, her blue cloak, severe black hat melting into the dimness of the austere little room. Only the fine, drawn, white face stood out, composed and calm as always. Thank you, Pauline, she said. There were a hundred questions Pauline wanted to ask, but she knew better. She turned and left, going back to her duties in the crowded hospital. But through the hours she waited breathlessly. She realized now what was happening at the Institut de Page. Only last week she had been going down the cellar steps at dawn for her refresher of bread and tea, and a shape had moved silently out of the shadows. "'It's a ghost!' she had gasped. But the shape said comfortingly, "'Hello, Nursie.' It was one of the two Englishmen Miss Cavell had taken in, a wounded colonel and a sergeant major. They had been brought to the hospital and hidden. Now they were well enough, and Miss Cavell was taking them to safety. Pauline heard the men moving almost silently down the stairs and across the hall, but Miss Cavell moved so quietly she did not even hear her. Then the front door closed, and they were lost in the misty dawn. It was three hours before Madame returned. Pauline searched the beloved faces as the nurses congregated for breakfast. Edith Cavell's deep-set eyes were calm, Pauline thought. She has done what she has set out to do. The men were on their way to safety. Breakfasts were meager in war-torn Brussels in 1914. The Germans occupied the city. Cannons boomed in the distance, and at night the skies were red with flames. Meat had almost disappeared from the markets. People lived on bread, fish salad, and thin carrot soup, and there was never enough. There was never enough coal, either, and rooms were chilly and uncomfortable. But work went on, and the probationers and nurses whom Edith Cavell had trained in this small hospital, set up and run by the brilliant Dr. Henry Depage, were devoted to her and did not think of deserting. They came from England, Holland, and Belgium, and they worked from early morning till late in the night, with only half a day off every other week. But Edith Cavell had so filled their hearts with the ideals of nursing that they gloried in their profession. They admired and respected Miss Cavell, even though they did not quite understand her. She was thin and frail, with an indomitable will. She carried her head high and walked with the carriage of a soldier, so that she seemed taller than she was. Sometimes she would play with them on the piano in the little sitting-room, but though they gathered round and sang for her, they never felt intimate with her. At meal-times, she shared their meager food and sat silently. There was little conversation, and afterward she would stand at the door and nod to each of them as they filed past. Then she would return to her office or her rounds. But the girls knew a thousand instances of her kindnesses, too. 
She had helped one of the probationers who had got into trouble. She had saved another girl from a disastrous situation, and when they tiptoed upstairs late at night in their stocking feet, her voice would float out to them, "'Put your shoes on, my dears. You will catch cold.' And now they knew that she had undertaken this hazardous business of helping soldiers to leave the country. What had brought her to this position of trust and danger? They wondered. Once in a while they would glimpse her, in her small office, the endless papers before her, her head resting on her thin, delicately boned hand, and they were sure she was thinking of her past. It was a strange story, and sometimes Edith Cavell pondered herself on the quarks of fate that had brought her here. An Englishwoman to make her life work in an alien country in wartime. She remembered her childhood in the vicarage of Swordston, a sleepy little town in rural England, where her father ministered to the people and her mother, a bright, warm-hearted person, offset his dour nature by her laughter and her generous heart. Edith often walked with her dogs in the cemetery that adjoined the vicarage. She always had dogs, and even in war-ridden Belgium she kept her cherished Don and Jack close to her. She picked wild strawberries and studied and played with her younger brother and sister and sang nursery rhymes to them. When she was sent away to Miss Margaret Gibson's school, she studied hard, and it was through Miss Gibson that she became governess in a wealthy Belgian family. They were quiet and happy years, but when she received word that her father was very ill, she returned to England. For almost a year she took care of him. In that time a desire had always been with her, but that she had not recognized came to the surface. She would be a nurse. At that time nursing was looked upon askance as a profession for a young woman. It had not been very many years since Florence Nightingale had encouraged nursing as a career. Patients and doctors were skeptical. The training was hard and the duties harder. The pay was very low. On the continent, no proper young lady went into nursing. If she did, her chances of getting married were cancelled. Edith Cavell was thirty-five when she decided to become a nurse. Anyone else would have said she was too old to begin training, but she became a student nurse at London Hospital. It was a noisy place in the midst of sooty buildings and near the docks. It smelled of carbolic acid. The cooking was poor, and the walls were grimy whitewashed plaster. As a pink, a probationer, she slept with three other girls in a small cell-like room. Her days were filled with the most menial tasks. When the pinks weren't studying or tending the sick, they scrubbed the floors and polished brasswork. The matron found Edith to be a good student who accepted her work cheerfully, and soon she was ministering to the feeble, the poor, the aged, and insane, and even the criminals of London. With only two years' experience, Edith Cavell was given supervision over other nurses when a typhoid epidemic broke out. The hospitals were taxed to the limit, and afterward people said her work was outstanding. From there, she became night superintendent at the North St. Pancras Infirmary, which took care of accident cases and especially of children. 
Later she was made assistant at Matron of Swordrich Infirmary, a bleak place in a squalid district of London, and then at Fountain Hospital, Lowering Toothing, and after the temporary matron of the Ashton New Road district in Manchester. There were many poor here, and nearby mills and mines furnished a constant supply of casualties. Many people remember Edith Cavell in her flowing cape and her black bag, hurrying through the streets of her errand of mercy. She lent clothes for newborn babies, found bedding and blankets and chairs and hot water bottles for those who needed them. They called her the poor man's nightingale and her picture was in most homes. One of her nurses said, Next to Miss Cavell, other women seemed so weak, so thin. It was about this time that the brilliant Dr. Depage set up his clinique in Brussels. He had bought several houses side by side and turned them into a hospital, which took care of all cases from maternity to mental. He needed nurses. He needed a supervisor. One of the prominent Belgians who sponsored the school was a Madame Gru. Her son had married Marguerite Françoise, and for whom Edith Cavell had been governess years before. So it was through Madame Gru that Edith Cavell was invited to come to Brussels and organize and direct a nursing school. She knew it would not be an easy task. There were no nursing schools in Belgium, few for them, for that matter, in all of Europe. Nuns without medical training took care of most of the sick. Dr. Depage had another ideal. He wanted trained women for his own hospital and for the city. Edith Cavell uniformed her first group of nine probationers in blue cotton dresses, white collars, high white aprons, with white linen sleeves to cover the forearms, and little white caps, a far cry from the flowing black of the nun nurses. Soon the number of probationers grew to thirteen, girls from England, Holland, France, Switzerland, and even Germany. The girls respected and trusted her. They thought she was strict, but just. They worked for her rare smile. But as the years went by and her work increased and her wartime responsibilities mounted, the smile seldom came, though her composure never vanished. She was like a rock to them. She taught anatomy and preventative medicine and hygiene, illustrating her talks and drawings on the blackboard. She expected the best of them. With lives at stake, they must be careful and gentle and know all they could. She had no patience with sloppy habits and faulty thinking. The hospital prospered, even though there was never enough money. The nursing school was crowded. Dr. Depage's wife helped him in his work and in the laboratory. Edith Cavell was proud of her girls and their work. For herself, she took on still more duties. It was almost as if she were trying to make up for years lost to nursing. She became matron of the new St. Giles Hospital, not far away from the Clinique, and also at the St. Pierre and the St. Jean, and at a special sanitarium that the energetic Dr. Depage had set up. Doctors thought so highly of her as a surgical nurse that she was constant demand 
at major operations, she made daily rounds of the hospitals, she taught, she helped in surgery, and her responsibilities to hundreds of patients were added to her responsibility for her girls whom she was training. By 1912, she could report that her school was furnishing nurses for three hospitals, three private clinics, 24 public schools, and 13 kindergartens. The kindergartens were her special joy. She loved children and wished she had more time to give to them. The walls of St. Giles' nursery were painted blue and white, with pictures from Aesop's fables along the walls. Her students worried about her. She was so tired and frail. Finally, they persuaded her to take a vacation, and she went back to England to visit. It was in August of that year, 1914, that war broke out. She might have stayed in England, but her duties and her heart called her back to Belgium. She never saw her mother again. Belgium was overrun by the conquering Germans. Their gray uniforms were everywhere. The government left Brussels for Antwerp. The fortress at Antwerp fell. People were fleeing to the country, and the roads were clogged. The wounded began coming in. Edith Cavell was needed more than ever before, for Brussels had been declared defenseless. She wrote, I have seen suffering, poverty, and human wretchedness in the slums of London, but nothing I saw there hurts me the way it does to see these proud, happy people humiliated and deprived of their men, their homes invaded by enemy soldiers, quartered in them, their businesses ruined. I can only ask myself why. Oh, why should these innocent people be made to suffer like this? She was outspoken in her conversations, too, and people worried about her, but Edith Cavell lifted her head high. In times like these, she said, when terror makes might seem right, there is a higher duty than prudence. That was why she began hiding soldiers in her cellar, in the back rooms of the old houses that were the hospital. That is why she had her probationers put up packages of bread and milk, and herself led the hidden ones out of the city by devious routes, so that they might escape to Holland and perhaps to England. That is why she took on more and more men, whom patriots brought to her, and kept them hidden till they could be spirited away by guides, men who risked their lives nightly and took others out of the country. The girls knew what was going on. They were thrilled but unhappy, for they never knew, as the months wore on, when they would be caught, and they feared for their directresses. But the directress herself was fearless. Food grew scarcer and scarcer. The empty lot across from the clinique was turned into a potato field where people labored every day. But who were these people? Among them might be a spy, keeping his eye on the comings and goings at the clinique. Who were some of the men who applied for refugees? They spoke French or English, but were they French or English? Sister Wilkins, Edith Cavell's valuable assistant, was sure one of these refugees was an informer. His name, as he gave it, was Quinn, and several times he had followed one of the nurses as she crossed the city to leave the message at the home of the Patriot. 
In July, Miss Cavell accepted nine English soldiers who had been found in the woods near a chateau by the schoolteacher patriot, Louise. They had been there only a short time before two German officers arrived to talk to Edith Cavell. They went into her office, and Sister Wilkins spirited the Englishmen half-dressed into the basement and then into the garden and over a stone wall to a vacant house in the rear. Other nurses were gathered up magazines and English and French and hiding them under the bathtubs. Secret papers went into a storage tank, but one of the officers cried, Verboten! The nurses recognized him as one of the men who had some time ago come to discuss renting a room. The directress's office was turned upside down. Pictures and family portraits were torn from the walls. Cups and saucers smashed in the cupboards. Floorboards pried loose. They did not find what they were after. But a German guard came to live at the clinique. He sat puffing a cigar in a little room near the front door, where he could see everyone who came and went. It was the beginning of the end. The clinique and all who lived and worked there were under suspicion. The girls, not one of whom thought of leaving their directress in her trouble, felt they said, as if must fall on their knees to her, so sweet and calm and strong she was, so unyielding in her sense of what was right to do. All over Brussels people were beginning, they were beginning to be arrested, housewives, shopkeepers, architects, whoever had assisted in any way to offset the cruelty of the Germans or helped men escape to neutral countries. Miss Cavell and her devoted staff were getting ready to move into a new hospital, which, in spite of the war, had been built and made ready for them. It was 3.30 on the 5th of August. Three men, not in uniform, entered the old clinic. "'We want to look at some furniture,' they said. It seemed a reasonable request for them. Without warning, one of the men leveled a revolver at the head of Sister Wilkins pushed her into a side room, and another man went off to find the directress. He found her in an upstairs pantry arranging flowers. When he brought her down, the nurses were in terror, but Edith Clavel said calmly, Don't be sad, my children. Everything will be all right. I'll be back soon. They took Sister Wilkins and Edith Clavel to the com commandant. Sister Wilkins denied everything. She did not know what was going on. She did not know the men who had supplied the report. She turned their questions aside until they were tired of questioning her and let her return to the clinique. But they put Edith Cavell in a solitary confinement in St. Giles' prison. No one was allowed to see her. Although food could be sent in, the girls saved their pennies and sent her roses and chrysanthemums. And much later, she wrote them a loving letter bidding them to be of good cheer. She asked about Sister Wilkins and her beloved dog Jack. She asked them to study hard so that they could pass their examinations with credit to themselves and to her. She felt, she said, that she would be back soon. But she never came back. They put her on trial with the others, and she calmly acknowledged that she had helped men escape. She made a written confession in which she told exactly how many and who they were and how much money she had supplied them with. She would deny nothing. 
her defending lawyer was in despair, for she made it impossible for him to build up a case to save her. She read her Bible and wrote in her prayer book, and wrote to her nurses and saw the visiting clergyman with a quiet, composed face. Her bearing was as erect as ever, her eyes as calm as her faith. On a chill morning in October, at five o'clock, they drove Edith Cavell to a prison yard. She was neatly dressed, her cape and black hat. They tied her arms and set her against the white wall and fired bullets into her body. It was quickly over. Edith Cavell died as she had lived, quietly and bravely. But in one sense, it was not over and never will be. Word flashed around the world that a brave and wonderful woman had been killed. People wept. Men fought to join the colors to avenge her death. Hospitals were built in her name. Her body was brought home to England on a battleship, and a statue stands in Trafalgar Square as a constant reminder of her valor. Here the tall, gaunt figure, with a beautiful face and surging eyes and flowing nurse's uniform, reminds everyone who sees it of the quality of the human spirit. Patriotism is not enough, Edith Cavell said from her heart. I must have no hatred or bitterness for anyone.